1: Welcome to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. I'm JR Lowry, and today I have the pleasure of welcoming John Judge to the show. John's career thus far spans the nonprofit sector, government service, and some time doing real estate development and construction. His nonprofit stops read like a who's who in recognizable names, the Boy Scouts, Goodwill, Habitat for Humanity, work in support of AmeriCorps. And most recently, he's been serving as president and CEO of the Appalachian Mountain Club. He's on the verge of starting a new role as president and CEO of the Trustees of Reservations in Massachusetts, which is the nation's oldest land trust. He's a Boston native, a graduate of Stonehill College in Easton, Mass., where my wife also went to school, and a hold of a master's degree in public administration from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. John, welcome.
2: Thanks for having me. It's great to be here.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Let's dive in. You're Boston-born and raised. What was your first job? you know, when you were a kid?
2: I think my first job was probably I had a paper route. The paper route included the Milton Hospital, which was tough for a kid, you know, to be delivering newspapers to hospital rooms. But I think the nurses and the doctors back at that time said, hey, go in, you're going to cheer them up. And everyone's scrambling to try to find a quarter and buy a newspaper. And then I would caddy on the weekends, you know, so Saturday and Sunday's I'd caddy at the local golf course, and I remember these guys who had a 1,200-pound bag, a small Toyota golf bag that had everything in it. I mean, ridiculous number of clubs. And they'd give me $20 to carry doubles for 18 holes. And back in the 80s, that was pretty good. Great exercise and not bad money. So those were two of my early jobs. And then in high school, I Started a landscaping company. So I've landscaped different homes around neighborhoods near me.
1: Cool. As I've told others who I've done uh, episodes with, I, I mowed lawns as a kid. I never graduated into full on landscaping. I pretty much just mowed the lawns. Back in your teenage years, did you envision at that point that you wanted to do something in the nonprofit sector? When did that idea really kind of emerge for you?
2: Yeah, I think just in terms of nonprofit as a job, I always admired organizations, you know, with strong missions. But when I was at Stonehill, I was interested in economics. And essentially, my sub major in econ was monetary economics and thought I'd go work for a bank. And I was pretty close to taking a job with the Boston company, which eventually merged with Mellon Bank. And then somebody from the Boy Scouts called me up and said, hey, you've worked summer camp with the Boy Scouts. This is an extension of that, you know, come work for us and become a professional scouter. So I said to my parents and myself, I'll do it for a couple of years, kind of like my service. And this is before AmeriCorps. But a couple of years turned into, you know, six years. And then I had a chance to move somewhere else in the country with them and got a couple job offers. One was in Maryland. And I said, no. And in scouting, you have to continue to kind of move up the ranks, if you will, and if you don't do that, they say that you're not serious about becoming a professional scouter. So at that point, that's when I went to Goodwill Industries. But I've always loved having a mission and you know selling the mission versus trying to sell a widget or something that really appealed to me. It's ironic, though, because during my summers at Stonehill, I paid for my tuition by virtue of selling cars. I sold Hyundai's seven days a week. 80, 90 hours a week. And wow. part of me was probably pretty burnt out having done that four summers in a row You I know, with imagine. no real summer fun. It was a great sales experience. And I think fundraising, there's a lot of sales that's needed to be a good fundraiser. So it translated for me.
1: what did you do when you were working for the Boy Scouts?
2: They have you start out as a district executive. So they give you a number of communities. And I right. had inner city Boston when I started out had a great boss. His name was Pete Washington, my first boss out of college. And he really instilled in me the opportunities that we had to partner with churches and schools and synagogues and other organizations to try to get scouting throughout communities, whether it be Dorchester or Mattapan or wherever. He was a lifelong scouter. And this tall, gregarious, smart guy African American guy and just really helped me in terms of better understanding how to connect with untapped communities and meet people where they are in terms of partnering in building a relationship versus transactional. You know, he was just a wonderful relationship person and a great boss for me. And then after that, at the Scouts, I kind of moved into more of a fundraising role. And that's the one that I ended was uh, development and marketing. And at the time, we had a partnership with Arnold Advertising, the group that made the Drivers Wanted campaign. And I was very fortunate. I got the chance to know Ed Eskandarian, who was the CEO at the time, and Fran Kelly, who was the president, who's actually a neighbor of mine now. But you know, they had said to me, when I was thinking about leaving the scouts, would you want to work at Arnold? And they set up a couple of days for me to just go around and shadow some folks. And it was really a wonderful thing to do. And it gave me... you know, I still have a lifelong interest in marketing, but I said to myself, I don't want to work at an ad agency. So from there, a job opened up at Goodwill Industries in fundraising, grant writing,
1: direct mail. It's great that they gave you that opportunity. I mean, back then, that wasn't really a common thing to do. Now it's getting more common for people to ask you to shadow so they can see what it's like. I, you know, I mean, other than having to deal with any sort of safety, confidentiality issues in your workplace, I mean, it's a great way for, for you to be able to help somebody understand whether they really want to do the job.
2: I agree. I've had a couple people ask me, come in and grab a cup of coffee You know, the shadowing thing is a huge commitment, especially if it's all on you. Oh, yeah. You know, In terms of, you know, somebody wants to come in and walk around with you for the day. It's a lot, you know. So I'd be interested to hear from you and others, you know, what's kind of the hybrid that
1: might be out there. But I... Yeah. One of my former McKinsey colleagues actually was running, starting a company. We talked probably about a year ago. And the company basically was giving you... It was sort of a platform that existed between companies who were... Maybe looking for a different way to attract talent and people who wanted to see what a job is like. It was like a matching platform for exactly what you did in a very kind of, you know, old school way with Arnold. So, a few years at Goodwill then, and then you went to Habitat for Humanity, right?
2: Yeah, it was a year and a half at Goodwill, and it was actually at State Street, JR. I was at a nonprofit leadership kind of reception at State Street, and I was talking with a great woman named Sandra Butler from. Dorchester. And I asked her what the pin was on her lapel. And she said, oh, it's Habitat for Humanity. And we got to talking and I said, oh, I've always wanted to come out and swing a hammer. And she said, well, would you be interested in being our executive director? And I Quite said, yeah, I would after. be interested in that. So one thing led to another and I came in and it was Habitat for Humanity Roxbury. It was They were just focused pretty much on Roxbury and It was in tough shape, you know, thanks to Sandra and other volunteers, they were turning the corner, but it was almost disaffiliated. It just hadn't been building any houses. And it was a turnaround situation for me, including digging them out of debt. But it was a wonderful experience and gave me some really deep knowledge of, you know, Dorchester, Roxbury, and we did other projects throughout the greater Boston area, including in communities like Needham and Newton. So it was interesting doing projects in South Boston. And I think one of the things, again, was the power of partnerships that I learned in that job. You know, the African Methodist Episcopal churches, the AME churches really embraced me and helped me succeed. And a lot of folks in the community, Mrs. Lila Fredericks, who has a middle school named after her now, she passed away a few years ago, but a great lady originally from the South, but... Here she is standing up at a community meeting and when people weren't letting me talk. And she said, Let Mr. Judge speak. And everyone stopped talking. And I remember a couple of young men said, Be quiet. Mrs. Frederick said, be quiet. You know, Habitat was just a powerful experience in terms of partnering with faith communities, partnering with corporate entities like the New Balances of the world. You know, I had the Davises came out from New Balance and Other corporate partners, Channel 5, WCVB, which is the ABC affiliate in Boston, I came out one time and the general manager said to me, why don't more people know about this? And Karen Ward, who is the head of community affairs for Channel 5, looked at the general manager and she said, well, you're in a position where people can know more about this. So they really helped put us on the map and we grew exponentially and became one of the best performing urban habitat for humanities. And I earned my construction license at the time. And so I had a construction supervisor's license and learned a lot about zoning and permitting in the city and with folks at City Hall. So it really was a wonderful experience. And I think I was just 30 at the time when I took it over. So to be a young CEO of a turnaround situation, it was a great learning platform.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. That's it's a kind of a young age to be dealing with that kind of situation. Were there other things that you learned from that turnaround that you, you kind of took with you in the years of your career since then?
2: Yeah, I think from a hope standpoint and a perseverance standpoint, it was... Yeah. You know, nothing is insurmountable. I mean, I could tell you stories about it was a tough sled for the first couple of years there. I was going out at three o'clock in the morning to a neighborhood in Dorchester to take care of a, a broken water pipe that was pouring out into the street. And mm-hmm. you know, the neighbors saying, What's going on? And in some cases, we're having tools stolen multiple times, you know, even though they were locked up, but we persevered. And I think the partnership element has always been one that I think is really important, you know, picking the right partners and working on the stewardship of those relationships, making sure that they're getting something out of it too, that's not a one sided partnership. And then you know, having a little bit of abundance mentality. I think you need it when you're fundraising. You know, you're saying to somebody, hey, would you write a check for $5,000? And the person might laugh and say, gee, I don't write a check for $5,000 anything. How can you ask me for that? And But that's kind of the worst case scenario. Most people would say, oh, gee, I'm flattered that you think I can write a check for $5,000. I will give you a check for five hundred because I believe in what you're doing. But I think especially with fundraising, you have to go in with that mentality that the money is out there. Because, and it's similar to looking for a job, right? You can't start out by saying, hey, there's nothing out there, and then go out every day and beat the bushes. You really have to go out with a, hey, I'm going to find the best gig for me, and it's going to take some work, and it's going to take some time, and it's going to take a lot of networking, but I will get it. You know, so from a perseverance standpoint, I think anybody running a nonprofit, you really have to have perseverance and then hope, and then this belief that what you're selling is going to appeal to folks, you know, that they will want to support and give to. And if you don't have those things, then you're better off going for something else that you're passionate about, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. So then you went to Kennedy School at some point around that time. What drove your decision to go to get your master's in public administration?
2: I got into an MBA program at UMass Boston. It might've been me only taking a couple of classes, but it was through the MBA program. One was on information systems, IT, and another one I think was on management and they weren't as interesting as I had hoped. So I came home and I, I was living in Dorchester at the time and just had a yellow paper moment where you know you put the pros and the cons on both sides. And I'm just really interested in policy and in leadership. And I remember somebody had told me about the MPA program at Suffolk, for instance, and I looked into that and then somebody told me about the MPA program. At Harvard, and I looked into that and you know, was really honored to get into the Harvard program and got in, didn't know how I was gonna pay for it. So I deferred for a year. So I think I started when I was 31. And I was the only one who was working full time and going through a program. And a month before graduation, the dean. Sue Williamson pulled me into her office and she was like, how could you do this? You know, this is ridiculous. You're making a a mockery of this program. And she was a terrific supporter and wrote a letter for me to get into a doctorate program after that. I decided not to do it, but I got in. So she and I were friends, but she really said to me, this was supposed to be your full time focus and not having a full time job. So I was still running Habitat for Humanity. And then going to school, jumping on the train, heading over there, taking classes, you know, Crazy. continuing to grow habitat. But I didn't want to get out with a hundred thousand dollars in debt. And thankfully, I think they gave me a half a scholarship, which is a lot at the time. But I love the Kennedy School. I mean, it was just amazing to be able to take. I took a couple of classes at Harvard Business School, one Rosabeth Moss Cantor taught took some at Harvard University. For her, um, Roger Porter taught a great class on leadership and took a great class on leadership with David Gergen, and a few other people on nonprofit management. So it really was a wonderful experience and an opportunity to kind of pick and choose what you wanted to do in terms of designing your own program versus going somewhere else where they might have kind of a rigid, hey, these are the core courses that you need to take and yeah. You can't be going off and taking a leadership class over at another school or a design class at another school. So it spoke to me because I feel like, from a change the world standpoint, having that opportunity to learn more about leadership and policy was a great thing for me.
1: So it sounds like, despite the fact that you were a full time student and a full time running Habitat for Humanity in in Boston, you view it as a good experience and worth the time.
2: Yeah, very much so. I loved it. I'll tell you a tough experience I had was. I had a two year contract in Springfield and it was 2011. So it was the 10th anniversary of my graduating class at Harvard. And I went back and I just left Springfield. My father had passed away recently and I was dealing with my mother's kind of health issues. She was having some early dementia kind of issues. And I went to this alumni event and I sat in the back of the room and they started to go around the room and each person was upping the next person was almost like a Facebook uh, commercial, you know, people showing the restaurants that they go to and the meals that they had and the next person trying to up it, you know, with a better bottle of wine or whatever. But so I slipped out the back because I didn't want to have to go into the fact that I did not have a job at the time. And so, you know, just in terms of any of your listeners, I really feel like, The opportunities are out there and to just give it time and to really work it on so many different angles. And then also think about what I like to call bridge kind of jobs. Think about jobs that will help you get to where you really want to be versus holding out for this panacea. Somebody's going to pay me 5X and I'm going to have this title and I'm going to be able to work in this kind of building and have this many weeks vacation. Rather than kind of hold out for that perfect ideal, go for the bridge job. And coming away from Springfield, I had a couple of opportunities to stay in city and state government, a couple of offers. And I said to myself, no, I think I really want to get into nonprofit. And I'm glad I kind of pushed back and not just took the first couple of jobs that came my way. Because that's when the Appalachian Mountain Club came knocking and said, hey, we know you're an Eagle Scout. We're looking for somebody who has urban experience and fundraising experience we see you have. So would you be interested in throwing your hat in the ring for this and the rest is history?
1: And just listening to the story up until now, it's like you took your job with the Boy Scouts. You got a taste of the nonprofit world. You went to Goodwill. You had kind of the marketing fundraising piece there that sort of combined to position you through the time you spent at Habitat for Humanity, you got to run something, you had turnaround experience, and you know all the relationships that you've described along the way that sort of helped you sort of flow your way along, both through those different groups, and then your time in the Kennedy School and since then. And, you know, it all kind of leads up to, you know, you look at your resume and you say, okay, there's a lot of great things that this guy can add coming in and running an outdoor focused club, right, conservation, recreation, all of that. So it's a great example of maybe not through intent, but sort of accumulating the relationships and the skills along the way that sort of, as you say, one thing builds to another. And you combine that with having a strong sense of what you wanted to do and holding out for it. And as you say, the rest is history. So it's been 10 years at the Appalachian Mountain Club, hiking, outdoor activities, particularly in the time of COVID. Are um, at an all-time high. Would you? A lot of people would look at that job—that job as a dream job. Was it a dream job for you? Has it been a dream job for you?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's bittersweet to leave. I had so many people during the past ten years. My friend Newt, who's a lawyer in Boston, would introduce me and say, "This guy's got the best job in America." And <laughs> uh, and I would not. You know, I really feel like it was the best job in America, and. Having an opportunity to work for AMC has been a real honor. And it's been a blast too. You know, it's given me a chance to be entrepreneurial and to put some of, for instance, my economic development work and from Springfield to work, you know, as we work with these rural communities, helping them with economic development related investments, whether it be building new lodges and this Piscataquis County, you know, one of the poorest counties in the United States, to the work that we're doing and Northern New Hampshire to the work of conservation. You know, we've really tried to lift AMC's voice when it comes to conservation policy. And we finished, we're leading the Land Water Conservation Fund Coalition, a 1,200 member national coalition. And we're able to do that and be a success getting what was called the Great American Outdoors Act passed and funding the Land Water Conservation Fund at $990 million a year. Because we're nonpartisan, you know, to be able to get into the offices of Republicans, Democrats, independents. So that was great. So getting to put on great programs, working with 16,000 volunteers, the whole lodging business, 200,000 or so overnight guests, so a big hospitality operation. And then the conservation research, conservation policy. And my favorite was, you know, trail building and trail maintenance, growing that we're doing trail work now in Valley Forge and Acadia and Baxter, and of course, all around the White Mountains. So it was really a great job. And the trustees called me, the trustees of reservations, which is another venerable nonprofit organization and name, called me last, I think at the end of May and said, hey, would you be interested in throwing your hat in the ring for this? And I was like, ah, oh, you know, I really love my job. I love being at AMC. But I also think 10 years is a great run. And yeah. the past couple of years, as you know, for CEOs, I don't care if you're running a, the neighborhood grocery store or a small restaurant or a Liberty Mutual or Coca-Cola. I mean, whatever it is in between. It's been a tough time to be a worker, yeah. of course, but I think a very tough time to be a CEO. And, I see it in how our leaders have aged, you know. So it was an opportune call for me because it gave me a chance to sit down and say, okay, you know, I've had 10 great years. This is a wonderful time to hand off AMC. It's doing so well. You know, we just hit new historic highs with fundraising. And I know we're coming out of COVID soon. And we have advanced registrations for next year's huts and lodges that are way above So, I felt like it was a good time to hand it off and was also good for me at this, still in my early 50s, to say, you know, here's another challenge. And it's my curiosity around the trustees reaching out, you know, led to me reading about them online and understanding what they were talking about in terms of coastal resiliency. And it tied in with. A lot of the concepts that I wrote about in a book I wrote a couple of years ago called The Outdoor Citizen, which talks about a number of things, the outdoor city, for instance, really making the outdoors more of, in nature, a central pillar of urban life. And then this idea of a next ecology and amplification of nature system services and our conservation stewardship and our harmonious living with nature and our responsibility for living with nature. So the trustees, they have 125 or so properties across Massachusetts, but they own 120 miles of coastline in Massachusetts. And so thinking about what we can do to boost coastline and nature system services, but what are we doing for the most vulnerable neighborhoods? Which are going to be hard hit by extreme weather events, how are we working on diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and making sure everybody knows that the outdoors belongs to everybody? I mean, the the outdoors for too long has been the bastion of white, wealthy folks, and just really moving the needle on that is going to take you know an organization like the trustees leading on a number of fronts. So, the, the urban connection or the urban opportunity that I had with the trustees, including they manage the Boston Community Gardens program, so they've got dozens of community gardens in the city of Boston. We're planning a park, Pierce Park Three, on Boston Harbor, raising money for that now. I think we're at about twenty-eight million, but need to raise thirty-six million. So, to me, that really excited me and tied in with a lot of my work as a chief city planner and head of economic development and a community developer and the habitat for humanity side of things and then all the conservation related work and nature stewardship work like trail building that I did at AMC so i'm excited about the change but the challenge in learning a new organization and helping to carry on the great work of my friend barbara erickson who is the ceo who passed away, battled cancer and just a you know young woman in her 40s and just a wonderful leader and inspiring. And so I feel very blessed to get a chance to continue her work and then take the trustee's mission and really connect it with folks that are living in cities or folks in untapped communities. And then hopefully continue to do what I think is happening, JR, during this time of COVID, I call it the great outdoor reset. Like you said at the top of your program, more people are getting the outdoors. And I think more people are getting the outdoors, more people appreciate nature. They know they need nature. But there's also, I think, a greater recognition around the sense of urgency with climate change. I think we have a real big opportunity, leadership opportunity, and a leadership responsibility at the trustee's to lead on all those fronts in terms of outdoor engagement, but also DEI and B, getting more folks involved with the work of the trustees, with pathways to jobs, and then also on the climate change side of things. We really have an opportunity, I think, in Boston and in Massachusetts to be a leader on climate resiliency. And I mean, you come to Boston, you fly in and you know I mean, with sea level rise, we are in trouble. We need to act now. We can't wait 10 years to do it. So I know a long-winded answer, but it's bittersweet to leave AMC. But I think it's a great time to pass the baton and then a good time for me to take on a new challenge.
1: Yeah, it's just listening to you describe it. It's As you say, it's a new challenge. 10 years is a good run as a CEO. One of the things I noticed about the trustees is you're going to be the fifth leader in 130 years, which is pretty mind-blowing. They've had some very long-term leaders there in the past. But as you say, 10 years is a good run, and it's a fresh challenge, and it allows you to kind of dive deeper on topics like, as you say, conservation, diversity, getting a broader mix of people out into the outdoors. So it's all good. For somebody who... A lot of people think about nonprofit careers, right? And I think they probably... Underestimate how much work it is, how much you're constantly in fundraising mode. What advice would you have for someone to figure out whether nonprofit is really what they want to do?
2: I would start out number one by having folks realize it's business. You can't come in and say to folks, hey, you know, I'm from XYZ Corporation or I'm from this university or whatever. This is how we do things there, and I'm going to turn things a little differently here at this nonprofit. Sometimes you hear that from folks, there's an underestimation in terms of the seriousness of the work. And, you know, when people come in, they're like, wow, this is a complicated business. And I didn't realize there are so many pieces to this. And you have the same relationship issues with staff, but then you also have this added layer of volunteer relationships, you know? So I would recommend that people, number one, think about what they're most passionate about. You know, they might be working for Habitat for Humanity or a great job training program. You know, Goodwill Industries does job training. There's programs like Year Up, Jumpstart, City Year. And then there are conservation organizations like the trustees and like AMC. So once you find out what you're passionate about, think about the area where you can contribute the most. If you're right out of college, you obviously have a chance to start at ground zero and then keep going up. But for other folks that might be coming in and looking at this as a second career, think about where you contribute the most. And then come into it with some humility. I think that's where folks go wrong. They come in and they're like, oh, gee, you know, this is terrible that this has been like this at this nonprofit for five years. I'm going to come in and change it tomorrow. And for some people, maybe they can do it, but for the majority of folks, they're going to say, wow, this is a lot harder than I expected. And I think understanding, also trying to read up on where things are going, whether it be on the IT and digital front, whether it be the science of climate change, whatever area under the nonprofit umbrella that you want to get into. I would do one's research and look into, hey, what's the new innovation that's coming down the pike, and then have a chance to sit down with a couple of folks that work in those Sectors who you really respect or have followed or have done some research on, and learn what a typical day is like for that person. So, again, the passion thing do what you're really passionate about. Come into it with humility, knowing that there are people that have been, you know, really working hard, grinding away for decades, trying to move the needle on it. You've got to come in and be willing to work shoulder to shoulder and not be judgmental and yeah. then opportunities, be a little bit of your own futurist and do research as to where that organization is going and where the future jobs might be at that organization. And then sit down with a couple folks that you admire, again, in that sector, to glean what what their typical day is like and inform your decision on whether or not you want to take it to the next level. And that next level could be similar to shadowing JR, which is trying to be an uber volunteer, you know, say, hey, I'd like to come in and volunteer 10 hours a week to start. It really gives you a sense of how the organization runs. And it's also a little bit of a rehearsal too, in the event that, hey, if you're a great volunteer, you have a chance that they might offer you a job at that place.
1: And particularly, you know, you're leaving an organization that obviously has a massive volunteer army supporting the mission. And especially in organizations like that, it's a lot easier to come in and give that kind of experience a try because there's just so many places that volunteer help can be used. If you, um, if you had to do everything all over again so far, would you do anything differently?
2: I don't think so. You know, I look back and of course you regret mistakes and you regret not being your best and so Mm -hmm. on. And I think there are many times when I said, oh, gee, why did I do that? Or why did I say that? One of the toughest points career-wise in my life was to leave Habitat for Humanity and start a for-profit real estate development company in 2005. And I had a two-year window where I was doing really well. And then everything hit the fan in 2007, 2008, where banks literally changed They call it the loan to value ratio or LTV, where they say, Hey, this is what you need. And now we're going to change it. So you need to put an extra $500,000 down or whatever. And I was, you know, I was bootstrapping everything. So that was particularly tough, especially to have friends lose money. No one lost more than me, but to be in that situation was really, really difficult and unfortunately lost some friendships with folks that just didn't understand that, you know, despite my best efforts, the world came tumbling down. And I remember talking with developers that had billion dollar portfolios, and they said to me that people weren't lending to them at that time, you know, so I think it certainly humbles you when you trip and when you fail like that. But it also, I think, puts things in perspective that got to do your best and sometimes, You're going to fail, but you need to move on. And that failure doesn't have to be your scarlet letter that you wear the rest of your life. I think for each one of us, the opportunity to take some smart risks and if you're going to fail, you know, they always say, fail fast, but learn from that and take that humility and empathy and love for your fellow human being onto the next thing. But I think learning from every victory and every defeat is really important, My mother would say, in terms of criticism, she'd say, oh, you know, believe 50% of your criticism and 50% of your praise, you know, so (laughs) you're kind of somewhere in the middle. But I think we have an incredibly connected world right now where you can, through LinkedIn, reach out and talk with JR in London or Susan in Arizona, but thinking about really reaching out and using that network and the friends of the friends kind of network that you never would have been able to see before. And now you can see it on LinkedIn and other platforms. So I really think that every person that's listening, you know, that try to have an abundance kind of mentality that there are jobs out there that you will want and they will want you. And trying to create as many connections or bridges to get you there yeah. And have some patience, knowing that it might not be your ideal job tomorrow, but maybe it's a job that is a giant step toward that ideal, whatever it might be
1: down the road. You were likening it to fundraising earlier. And I mean, for me, in some ways, that you know, finding a job is probably easier than fundraising because in fundraising it's again and again and again and again. And in a the job, it's you just got to get one match, right? At least at a time. I mean, you may have obviously multiple points in your life, your working life, where you have to find a job. But at any point in time, you just need to find one that's matched. So you, meanwhile, as a fundraiser, need to go out and keep asking for, you know, more and more checks till you hit that $8 million that you still need for the work that you want that's to do at right. park in Boston. And that's just one of your projects. Any final thoughts to share?
2: I'm reading a book now on AI and how it's going to change the workforce and so on. It's such an interesting time for us to be in the world and contribute to an organization to contribute to a mission. So my advice is obviously have patience and try to use every tool that you have, like LinkedIn and otherwise, to get you there. It's exciting. You know, think about the opportunities and aim high and don't give up.
1: Great. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of Career Sessions. I'd like to thank my guest, John Judge, for joining me today, uh, sharing his career story, talking in abundance about the relationships that he's built and the learnings that he's gleaned along the way. So, John, thank you again for joining. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Take care. Happy New Year. Yep. Same to you. And have a great day, everyone.
0: Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of PathWise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.